0: Uh, Fiona and I are both subject librarians in universities, so as part of our job, we support students and staff in the vet schools to do their literature searching. And one of the things that we thought we would, uh, we wanted to address a real-life issue, so in this paper, we thought we'd focus in on this coping with zero hits when you do a literature search. If I can just um, tell you a bit about what I do day to day. Um, I'm the li- subject librarian for veterinary sciences, but also dental sciences at Bristol. And at Bristol, we've just had a faculty restructure so that all the clinical subjects now come under the Faculty of Health Sciences. So, uh, medicine, vets, and dentists are all in the same faculty. And for me, that has a great advantage because it means that I'm sitting alongside a team of medical subject librarians in the medical library two days a week. And the medical librarians have been supporting evidence-based human medicine for some years. And I've watched them diligently uh, help people with their search strategies um, for systematic reviews in medicine uh, and to help teach the students the skills in literature searching. And it's only in recent years, really, that we've been adopting the practices that they've been using uh, to apply them to the vet school because of course now EBVM is a part of the curriculum in the Bristol Vet School. So uh, I teach literature searching to the vet students and I also support Christine Reier, who you might have seen at this conference. She uh, teaches the vertical theme in evidence-based medicine at Bristol. So I help her with her um, practicals and workshops with the students and we tie everything in in that way. So that's just to set the context and uh, I'll just ask Fiona to introduce herself.
1: Okay, I'm Fiona Brown. I'm from the University of Edinburgh. Um, Similarly to Emma, I work with colleagues who support evidence-based medicine, um, and we work quite closely together. We collaborate on um, producing material together. Uh, I teach information skills to vet students um, alongside academic staff as well. So it's part of the professional and clinical skills thread. Um, and I support literature searches for students, for staff, for PhD students, etc. Okay, so we're
0: going to jump up and down a little bit. Um, a lot of what we're saying today is actually available free online in this um, online tutorial, eBVM Learning, which was funded by RCVS Knowledge um, a year or so ago. And we authored the acquire section, which is on how to acquire the evidence for EBVM, so if you want to get more detail of some of the things we're saying, that would be a place to go. But really what I want to talk about is how, what what Fiona and I have both been faced with is translating the methods developed for human medicine in searching the literature to support evidence-based practice, how that translates across to the veterinary world. And there is now, I mean, a huge body of literature and expertise in um, evidence-based human medicine, which we can look at and learn from. But actually, when you translate it to the veterinary world, some different stuff happens. And uh, so I guess one of our motivations for doing this paper was to throw some of the issues and problems that we have out there to see if other people are having the same ones and and if you've got any solutions. So I'm hoping this is um, a learning process for all of us. So, yeah, one of the things that happens is we we teach the students the process of uh, asking a clinical question, creating a PICO, creating a search strategy, but when they do, they get to the databases, they they run their search, they get zero hits, and we have to help them cope with this. So, we brainstormed why is that, what are the reasons why you might get zero hits, And, and logically I think there are four. Firstly, it might be that the evidence just doesn't exist. It's not out there. Secondly, it might be that the evidence does exist, but you can't find it through the databases that we're telling the students to use. Thirdly, it might be because the evidence does exist in the databases, but our our searches aren't reaching it, so there's an issue with the searching there. Fourthly, it might be that we actually do find a reference to a a useful piece of evidence, but we can't get the full text. what we're going to do is use this as the structure for our talk. And I thought I'd start with a real-life example. So at Bristol, the interns uh, in the the, uh, animal hospitals are asked to do a piece of research. And this year, all of them are going to try and write an evidence synthesis. And so they've been coming to me for help with their literature search. And one of them came to me saying... She t- decided she wanted to write something about a problem that presents itself often in her the small animal hospital, and that's helping dogs who've eaten mouldy food and get sick. So we dutifully translated this into an answerable question, and we came up with, in dogs, with, myoto- with myotoxicosis, does the treatment with an intralipid compared to no treatment lead to better clinical improvement? Because she said, uh, anecdotally, In the clinics, they'd been using this treatment for some time, with some success, and she just wanted to kind of formally see what the data was out there um, to support this so that she could write it up for her report. So we we went through the method. We created a PICO. We translated that into a database search. We ran the database search. I thought we'd done everything that was recommended by Cochrane and so on, but we got zero hits. So this is just one example of this actually happening to us. And you can't see the detail there of the search strategy, but we've used subject headings. We've combined the subject heading searches with free text searches. We've searched for each key concept separately. We've combined them with our Boolean operators. um, And then we've done the and search at the end. So I think we've done stuff right, but it's not getting us um, any literature. So... We ran the search again in another database, Cab Abstracts. Hooray, we got two, but it only t- took her one second to scan the titles and said, no, they're not relevant. So there we are. We've got, we've got nothing. So her immediate response was, all right, I need to go away and pick another question. And um, having been to Kristen Rea's lectures, I said, well, that's not necessarily the right thing to do. It might be that there's no evidence out there because we know from conferences like this that the body of literature in the veterinary sciences is relatively small compared with the body of literature for the human um, sciences. But if you do a search like this um, and you can't find evidence, we're often encouraged to publish this. In fact, um, Rachel's just said this, hasn't she, a minute ago. Uh, For two reasons. One, it can help identify gaps And uh, universities or others who are looking um, for places to put their research effort or funding can use those gaps potentially to drive the research agenda. But also uh, it helps prevent duplicated efforts. So nobody else will spend the half hour or hour or so that we did slogging this out um, repeating a search that doesn't bring anything back. So I said to her, you could just report this. You could still write a knowledge summary and um, report the search strategy and say that there was no evidence um, from these sources. And some people are doing this and Rachel's, uh, very. she said just a moment ago best bets are very good at this. They're very upfront and honest when they get zero hits. So this is just one of the examples where um, she says, gosh that's very small, but basically that that, uh, bottom line says there was no peer-reviewed evidence that answered this exact clinical question and so for the time being the clinicians would use to, need to use their own um, what was it say, local licensing regulations or clinical um, expertise to help answer or treat animals with this condition. So this was my suggestion but of course there are other alternatives so we looked at those as well. So it might be that the evidence did, does exist but it's not going to be found through the formal roots of the bibliographic databases like MEDLINE and CAB Abstracts. So these databases are very upfront about what they include. They have a list of journals that they index, and they then say that they will index every article in every issue of every year of these journals. So they are a very good way of systematically searching the peer-reviewed scientific literature. But of course, what they don't capture is the grey literature, the stuff that's Public, uh, not published in the formal ways, does not in the formal routes. So there may be useful evidence in the grey literature which can help answer the clinical question. And I think for vets this is really um, perhaps more important than uh, in human medicine because of this apparent dearth of literature. And if you look at um, the standards that exist for conducting and reporting literature searches for systematic reviews. So Prisma is one of these. They're very um, upfront. Again, they openly acknowledge that databases are only one source of evidence. So on the top left, it says that they're reporting the databases they search. But the one box that I've circled um, talks about the number of additional records identified through other sources. And I think this box might be more important for vets um, than medics maybe. Because we won't find everything in the databases. We do need to consider um, other sources. And uh, this is Claire. Yeah, I've discovered Claire Wiley is at the conference. But I often use this uh, in my teaching as an example of how a vet has used the kind of PRISMA reporting um, approach to describe their literature search. And uh, so the main branch of this shows that she diligently searched the correct databases that are recommended. Um, she screened the articles, she uh, you know screened them for eligibility. But uh, on the bottom right, very um, openly, she's declared that some useful studies for this to answer her question were found through other sources. And I think the proportion is quite high. I think it's about. A quarter of the useful studies for this um, question were found through talking to experts and um, citation browsing. So clearly, experts, citation browsing, these sorts of sources are going to be really key for vets who are looking for evidence. And so I think when I'm supporting the vets in the vet school, I'm encouraging the use of these other sources. very specifically browsing citations, which Fiona will say more about in a minute. But also, they shouldn't be scared of using these uh, more informally published sources. So the grey literature, conference proceedings, case reports that you have locally, hand searches of journals or publications that might not be indexed by the databases, and using social networks, which is much easier than it used to be, thanks to the internet. Um, So all of these... I think we should... uh, I I constantly tell my undergraduates, you know, I think the undergraduates, they often hope that the database search method will give them everything they need, and they see this as slightly less authentic or valid, but um, I'm trying to persuade them that it's, uh, as Rachel would say, any evidence is better than no evidence. So in the example that I described back with the intern, it was actually the citation browsing that generated the most... um, most useful leads for us and so Fiona is going to just say a bit more about this fantastically
1: useful method So we just have some more dogs uh, before we move on Um, So these dogs are looking for information, they've not found what they want and they've decided that they're going to browse the citation networks and find information that way. Um, Browsing the, the citation networks, if you're finding that you don't get very many hits or you don't get very many relevant hits, as long as you've got one paper that is relevant, you can find out who has cited it. So it's a way of following the research forward rather than saying what's been published on this topic up to the 3rd of November 2016, you can say I've got this key paper from 2010, who's been, doing, who's been working in this area since um, that paper was published? And even if, um, if the, the papers are on a different animal, they might yield other relevant papers as well. So you might find that you've got a key paper, the papers that are citing it aren't on the animal that you're interested in, but they might have cited papers that are, interest, that are on the animal that you're interested in as well, or there may still be relevant information in that paper. And Web of Science is really a really useful resource doing this, Web of Science is also really useful for um, doing author searches as well. There are other databases that you can use, you can use Google Scholar, and I'll mention that in a second, but, um, so say for example that I would like to find who has cited the following paper, so the classic paper for librarians um, by Douglas Grindley, I want to see who's published, um, who's been cited that paper since it's been published. I've done a, a, reference, a cited reference search in Web of Science. And what I've used, um, I've used the author's name with the first initial, and I've used the truncation symbol for the database. So it may be that Douglas has a second initial, it may be that some places he's been cited with... D and another initial, it may be um, in some places he's been cited as Douglas. So if I do Grindley and the first initial and an asterisk, it will find all variations of uh, his name. And I've used the cited year, but I've not put anything in the cited work. And the reason for this is that um, what the, the database is doing is it's looking to see the citations that are in papers and see how papers have cited. Um, have cited a particular paper, and some journals will cite other journals differently. So, classic example: British Medical Journal can be cited in some journals as BMJ, in other journals as Brit Med J. So, if I leave that blank, as long as I've got a name that's not too common and a year, it will find um, it will find the papers, and it will find them even if the author. Um, that has cited the paper has cited them slightly incorrectly. So we've got three variations of the same paper there. We've got, um, you'd almost think I practiced this, wouldn't you? We've got Grindley Douglas JC. We've got Grindley DJC, Grindley Douglas JC again. We've got um, an author who has cited the issue, but not the pages. We've got an author who's cited the page incorrectly. And then we've got the bulk of the papers, 20 20 citing papers, that have the author cited, um, the the correct, completely correct citation. So if I'd just gone into um, the article, Douglas's article within Web of Science, it would only have found those 20 papers, but because I've done a cited reference search, it's picked up those other two as well. So I've selected all of those, and then it's showing me the 22 papers that have been cited, Um, it's showing me them in the order of the most recently cited. So I've got 22 papers there, but if I'd just gone into the database and looked at the paper to see how many times that had been cited, it's only picked up the 20 because it's not picked up the spelling variations and the inconsistencies. One of the really useful things about doing a cited reference search like this as well is that you don't have to know the first author. So the database will pick up, Web of Science will pick up, Um, cited references, even if you don't have the first author, and that's really useful if you've got a first author with a name like Brown that's really common. If you've got um, a slightly less common name as a third author, then you can choose that author. You can do exactly the same thing in Google Scholar. You can go into Google Scholar and look up a paper and see how many times that paper's been cited. And this is quite interesting because I did those two searches on exactly the same day, and Google Scholar is telling me there's 19 citations in Web of Science. Now, I found 22. Even if I'd just gone into Web of Science and looked at the paper by Grindley, I would still have found 20. Um, Google Scholar has found 33 papers but there are differences. Google, um, Web of Science has found three papers, uh, three citations that Google Scholar hasn't found, and Google Scholar has found citations that Web of Science hasn't found as well. And one of the papers um, that Web of Science found that Google Scholar didn't find was the paper from um, Cattle Practice by uh, Marnie Brennan, I think, on how to, um, how to promote evidence-based practice, which may have been a useful example in this situation. You can also, within Google Scholar, a really nice feature within Google Scholar is if you've found a whole range of, cited, of, of citing papers, you can search within them. So if you find that there's 700 papers that have cited the paper that you're interested in, you can search within those 700 papers to find the, thing, the topics that you're interested in, the animals that you're interested in, etc. Um, and that's what I've done in this example. I've gone into paper and I've selected the little tick box that says cite within a search within cited articles. uh, Citing and citing articles even and I've asked it to find dogs. We seem to have a dog theme in this session. So I'll pass back over.
0: Okay, so logically the third reason why you might get zero hits is that the evidence does exist in the databases but we're not finding it. And with undergraduates, um, this is a particular issue. When we're teaching them database searching, um, it's often not their favourite practical of the year. Um, I tell them that they have to learn to think like a robot, they have to think very logically as they search. One of them said, I hate this robot. And so, you know, we have to learn to love the robot if we're going to get the best out of it and let it help us. But, um, we're far enough into evidence-based human medicine for there to be a body of literature now on what goes wrong with people's database searching. And I've just um, listed, cited one article here that gives the following reasons. And I see all of these uh, in undergraduates who are learning this, uh, how to search databases. So number one is not understanding or framing the information need well. So, when we, Kristen and I, give the undergraduates a case scenario and we ask them to create an answerable question, sometimes they come up with very different questions than the ones we have as our model answer. And it takes time and experience to learn how to create um, an answerable question that will translate well to a database search. Poor searching skills. I mean, it is a pain, but you at some point need to get to grips with what a mesh heading is why it's important to use both subject heading searches and free text searches, how this maximizes recall of the relevant literature. Boolean operators, getting that logic absolutely right is going to have a huge effect on the um, recall that you get of relevant papers. And formulation of underspecified or on- overspecified. Queries. This is what undergraduates, it takes a while to get to grips with, so we give them case scenarios, Mm -hmm. and they'll end up searching on something like, I want um, papers about a four-year-old King Charles Spaniel whose left eye is slightly, you know, gammy, Uh, and we say, no, no, that's far too narrow, you're definitely going to get nothing if you search um, at that level, so don't search on the breed, search on the species, don't search on the trade name of the drug. Search on the generic name for the drug. All these things are things that you have to learn if you're going to get the best um, results. Bad relevance judgment. So yes, sometimes uh, in our practical sessions, the students say, none of, I've got all these results in the database, but none of them are any good. Uh, but when Kristen looks down at them, she goes, actually, I think these would be worth reading. So again, there's that experience about how to screen the results that you're getting. And I think that does come, come easier with practice. And that's, again, uh, one reason why people might think they've not found anything. But if, in fact, if they um, were screening in a slightly more uh, enlightened way, they might find useful evidence. And poor at query reformulation and correction of errors... This is what librarians get a lot. People email us their search strategy, and I encourage them to do this, because with practice, it gets easier to spot that they've got the bracket in the wrong place, or they've, mis- they've in, you know put or instead of and. The most common reason for zero hits with my students is usually they, a spelling mistake. They've spelt something in a totally random way, and they haven't considered alternative spellings in there. So again, this gets easier with practice, but when you scan a search history, um, sometimes you can very quickly spot what's wrong and why you're getting zero hits. But for some, it takes time to to get to grips with this. So yes, searching databases is slightly frustrating sometimes. It doesn't come easy uh, in in half an hour. It's something that you need to learn and to um, practice. Another reason for zero hits, is it people might be using totally inappropriate databases. So yes, Douglas has told us that Cab Abstracts has the best coverage of the currently published veterinary journals, but some of the questions that we ask um, may be equally answered by journals that fall outside the veterinary ones. So they might, there might be biomedical journals that are indexed in Medline and PubMed, which will help us answer our question better than a, a veterinary journal. And likewise... Biosis, the biology database can help with certain types of question. And the generic databases like Web of Science and Scopus can often sometimes throw up results that you won't find through this um, you know, Cab Abstracts golden database that we we know about as vets. So again, teaching students the the coverage of these is, is going to increase their chances of finding evidence. The other thing is when we teach this, the PICO method, we talk students through it. Sometimes they get very, very rigid with it. And um, we tell them to relax their PICO. Douglas used to call it a SPICO. He thought that species should be in there when you, do, when you use this method for vets. So typically, the student will identify their species, their problem, the intervention comparison outcome. They'll then throw these into their database search, get zero hits and then panic or give up or think that they've done something wrong. What we're telling them is, relax your pico. If you've done what we recommend, which is um, you've searched for each concept separately on a different line, then it's very, very easy in the search history to play around with different combinations. So sometimes we say, is the species really important here? You know, would it be possible that evidence relating to other species would help you in answering your clinical question? And if the answer is yes, we just drop species out of our um, combined search. And like, likewise with the um, intervention and the comparison, if you're not finding any hits where both are directly compared, you should ask the question well, would it be helpful to find any evidence about one of those? And one example that came up with us recently was uh, people were trying to compare the effect, efficacy of stem cells treatments with box rest for horses. And um, it, basically, people don't publish much about box rest; it's too you know too common a, a, a treatment, if you like. But if you just drop that out of the search, just look at horses with laminitis or oh, I forget the condition, but with um, stem cells, there was stuff that helped that, that helped with that. Piece of work. And just as Claire said the other day, we rarely search on outcome. And I think one of the reasons for this is it's very helpful in the screening process. When you're reading the full text of the articles, yes, you will be interested in the outcomes described. But as a search term, they're very often so broad that the authors might have chosen numerous alternative linguistic terms. Um, to describe the outcome, and you would miss those if you'd only used a, very, a single term. So, relax the pico, that's what, what we're telling our students. Um, it's an art, not a science. We're, well, actually, we're trying to be scientific, but you need to be creative in your searching. And so, the example I had with my intern, we tried these different combinations. So, we had our search history, a line for each um, key concept, And at one one time, we just combined the intervention and the comparison. Is anyone in any species comparing these two interventions? Then we also looked at comparing the population with the intervention. Has anyone uh, tried this intervention with this particular population? And likewise, we did that with the comparison as well. And it's just a way of seeing, is there anything out there that can help us in any way? It might not directly answer our question, but it still might help us with this clinical problem. I'm going to hand back to Fiona. Subject
1: headings. So the next thing that we wanted to talk about was um, subject headings and using subject headings. Sometimes it's, it's easy to forget that when you're within a particular subject area or within a particular specialism, that there's terminology that has an entirely different meaning in another subject area or or another specialism. If you use subject headings, then it should hopefully bring a higher proportion of relevant results for you, rather than if you just use free text alternatives. So, things like words like "membrane" are used by biologists and, and they 're used by engineers and if you 're using something like Google Scholar or Web of Science that covers all sciences, then you might pick up a whole range of articles that are completely irrelevant. the same with stress. do you mean stress during transport? do you mean stress fractures? do you mean dental stress, etc the other thing that people sometimes forget about is searching for all aspects of a topic if you're doing a subject heading search. If you're doing a subject heading search for zoonotic diseases, don't just search for zoonotic diseases. What types of zoonotic disease are you interested in? Because it may well be that the author hasn't used that term, they've used the, the disease. It may be that they it hasn't been indexed as a zoonotic disease or with that subject heading. So that's really useful, particularly for something like, um, like livestock, If you're looking for livestock, that's that's quite a sort of narrow term to to search for. You need to tell the databases what kind of livestock you're interested in. And be willing to explode. If you're doing a subject heading, be willing to a subject search, be willing to explode your subject headings. Ideally, um, when indexers are indexing articles and assigning subject headings to them, they should be using the narrowest subject heading that's available to them. So if there's an article about calves, they should be using calves and not cows. The same if there's an article about ewes or lambs, they should be using that instead of just sheep. So using the example from Cab Abstracts, if I go into Cab Abstracts and do a a subject heading search for sheep, there's an option to explode the subject heading. All that does is automatically include all the narrower subject headings within that subject heading using OR. So it's going to give you sheep or ewes or lambs or rams or weathers. And interestingly as well, sometimes, um, it's useful to look at subject headings to give you an idea of other subject headings to search by or other terms to search by. (coughs) So I mentioned livestock. If I look um, again at the subject headings within cab abstracts for livestock, there's 54,500 articles in cab abstracts with the subject heading livestock. But looking at the related terms, there are 456,000 articles on cattle. So if I search for, for livestock thinking that I was going to get cattle, sheep, pigs, goats, etc., I'm not. I'm just going to get um, articles that are broadly about livestock I won't necessarily get things um, that would include cattle as well. So we've talked about subject headings um, to make sure that you you focus on exactly what you're looking for. Um, But then we're also going to say, uh, just go over again what Emma was saying about including free text searches. That's particularly particularly useful if you're getting a low number of results. It gives better sensitivity and it will ensure that you're being comprehensive in your search. And um, that's used a lot in human evidence-based medicine. The other thing to do is to, to run lateral searches and to see searching as an iterative process. If you know that there are a few key papers, if you've already identified some key papers, even just one key paper, the first time you do your search, make sure that that paper is in the search results that you get. If that key paper that that you know about as being really useful, if that's not appearing in your search results, then you need to go back and redesign your search. So go to a relevant article, have a look at the subject headings, have a look at how that's been indexed, and that can give you other ideas to search by. It gives you um, terms that you might want to to search by. And if a search fails, don't just assume that because the search has failed that there's nothing there. Um, Rerun it, have a look at other terms that you can use. And um, Again, I'm talk, talking about seeing researching as an iterative process. I quite often find that when I'm searching, I go through um, not only the iterative process but also the process of thinking. Yes, this is really excellent, and think, and then oh no, I'm finding nothing. I'm finding nothing, or it's all irrelevant. So I keep going round in cycles of tweaking my search, redesigning my search, um, looking at new topic searches looking even at new author searches, if there's an author that I've identified, um, and including the citation browsing to give me other terms to work along, um, other terms to include in my search. But again, it's adapting your search. As you find more information and as you find more results, adapt your search in light of what you find. Um, I don't know whether this is relevant, but I was... I was um, my... One of my dogs has been at the vets recently um, and the treatment and diagnosis were changing as, the, um, as different test results came in. And I was thinking citations or searching is a bit like that. You find something else and then you think, well, um, I want to redesign this. I want to look at it. It's not quite what I thought. So adapt your search in the way that you um, would adapt your diagnosis. But I'm a librarian, so I can't really, can't really speak to vets on that. So I'll pass back over to Emma.
0: I think that's right. I think sometimes the students are expecting it to be easy. They, when they read a knowledge summary and somebody's reported a beautifully neat search and a very nice flow diagram, uh, that they, they have this idea that people came to that search strategy very quickly. Uh, but actually, what we have to teach them is it might have taken the search quite a long time to come up with the search that they're willing to go public with. Um, So yeah, don't be afraid of of that. And I suppose instruction in literature searching seems to me really quite important for evidence-based veterinary medicine because there's no doubt that in human medicine it's been discovered that training in literature searching helps, getting support from people who've got experience in it can help. So, if I work from the bottom up on this slide, when I started, I actually found just reading the Cochrane Handbook section on searching incredibly enlightening. So, that would be an obvious starting place. We now have the evidence, the veterinary evidence handbook from RCBS Knowledge, which has lots of advice on um, searching, and of course, the toolkits, which have been really, really useful. So, we're pointing people to those. Uh, We now have the online tutorial, EBVM Learning, which has this section on how to search the literature. So all of these are sort of useful for people who want to develop their literature searching skills. But the other option is if you know a friendly librarian, uh, ask for them to help. And uh, and vets, of course, are very lucky with this RCVS knowledge librarian uh, library service. And university subject librarians, again, supporting people in the universities with this. The one other issue which is clearly an issue Specific for the veterinary community, I think, is the fact that access to journal articles that are behind paywalls is not always there for everybody in the profession. Slight, I think this is slightly different from the human, world, the human medical world where they have the NHS and they have NHS libraries. So any doctor who's doing a, an evidence search can, just go, can actually just email their NHS librarian, who will then source the full text of the article for them. They'll actually run the search for them. Um, but we don't have an NHS library service um, in, in the veterinary world. We have RCVS Knowledge Library, um, but it, you know it, we're on a slightly different playing field here. So we need to think of creative ways around this, and Rachel alluded to one, but very often just a simple search of Google or PubMed you might get lucky, because with open access publishing on the increase, more and more people are sharing full text of their articles, even if it's in pre-print format, so that might be helpful. Professional bodies provide often access to key journals. We can request them from RCVS Knowledge Library, which is going to be absolutely invaluable, because if you find the gold standard reference, but you can't actually read the article, then really you're not um, accessing the evidence in the way you need to. And I remember at this conference two years ago, uh, one of our American colleagues reminded us that actually all public libraries offer an interlibrary loan service, and they were making good use of that. I think for seven pounds, or it used to be, I haven't used Ask for a while, um, you could, the, the, the public libraries can request articles from the British Library for you. And Fiona's reminded me that if you're a member of the National Library of Scotland, you can get access to a huge number of journals, electronic and um, in print. So um, it's going to be important for a vet in practice doing this sort of thing to work out the best route for them to actually get hold of the full text of the articles through one means or another. That's a bibliography, because I wanted to show that we were evidence-based But I want to just conclude with these remarks, really. Um, Yeah, this is what we're telling people at Bristol. Just because there's no published evidence for the treatments that you're using so far, using at the moment, doesn't mean they don't work. So for this intern who'd been using, saying that Bristol has been using this treatment for a long time with some success, but when we searched for the the formal literature for data to back this up, we couldn't find any. We haven't finished our search yet. I, I would say that's an ongoing piece of... Work, but that doesn't mean um, that they should stop doing it. Because, uh, yeah, literature searches identify the formally published literature, and it's only if we broaden them out that we might um, find evidence from other sources. But the evidence may be out there. It doesn't mean that um, the, 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 the treatment doesn't work. And I think it's very easy um, for in our in our practicals with students to forget the other two points on the on eBVM the triangle, and that is that the evidence is one part that will help you make the decision, but also your experience and the, uh, the views and the uh, wishes of the client are the other key factors. So, yeah, vets are doing a lot of brave things, trying stuff out to try and help these animals. Uh, just because you can't find a peer-reviewed paper in cab abstracts doesn't necessarily mean you should give up on that, on that practice. That's all we were going to say.